You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from me as I begin our series called The Master. John's a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Because in the book of John, it's set up just a little bit differently. We're going to look at seven signs, the seven signs in the book of John, uh, in the book of John the seven miracles that are recorded there, which all tell us about what is Jesus the master of, and we'll look at one of those today. Sometimes we'll look at some of the discourses, so we'll look at seven discourses or seven lectures that Jesus gives, and these tell us a little bit more about Jesus' master plan. What does he have for us and for the world? And then we'll also look at Jesus' seven I am claims, claims. We'll look at one today. These are revolutionary claims that talk about who Jesus is. And a few years ago, we studied the seven, uh, the seven I am statements. It was actually three years ago. It's hard to believe it's been that long. But um, we'll look at those as well. But as we begin this morning, I want us to begin in prayer. And I'd like us to begin this just about every week that we study this. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. And this morning, I want you to envision yourself walking to Jesus' workshop maybe approaching it. Whatever that looks like to you, it might be a workshed, it might be a workshop, it might be a boat. Jesus did a lot of his work on boats with fishermen. It might be on a hillside, as Jesus is about to begin. It might be a church building that you picture. Whatever it is, perceive that. Get that image into your mind and hold on to that. And as you perceive or picture yourself walking towards Jesus and learning from him, I want you to say these words with me. Jesus, I am here. Jesus, I am ready to learn. Jesus, I am listening. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to John chapter 2. And yes, we are going to learn, we're going to talk about the, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. Beginning in verse 1, in John chapter 2, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone Water jars, the kind used for, for the Jews for ceremonial, for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
So John tells us that the purpose of this miracle was that Jesus revealed his glory. In other words, Jesus revealed something about himself. Jesus proved his mastery, that he was the master. And in this miracle, because we're dealing with one of the signs, we're going to see that Jesus is the master of quality. The master of quality. The miracle here centers around wine. And to understand this miracle, to appreciate this miracle, we have to talk a little bit about wine. And this is not to glorify alcohol or anything like that. This is to talk about, if we're going to say that Jesus is the master of quality, we have to understand how wine has quality. I was thinking about this. You know, I was... um, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a wine connoisseur. I'm more of a bargain bin type of wine person. And, um, and I, I enjoy a glass here and there. And, and one time, I was, um, it was a, a gift for my wedding. We had a bottle of wine. And I opened this bottle, and I took a sip of it. And I said, this is the best wine I've ever had. And I knew it was the best wine I've ever had, because I've had some pretty awful wine before. And the, and the bargain bin just didn't hold up to this bottle of wine. And so I drank it. And I said, this is so good. And so the first thing I did was, i got to get more of this. So I went online and looked and discovered it was an Italian bottle of wine that cost $75 a bottle. That's about $65 above my limit. <laughs> and I said, well, that was fun. <laughs> Guess I won't be having that again. So it was nice. It was a nice treat. My friend came over, and uh, who, who doesn't, or at the time didn't like wine, and I said, I know you don't like wine. Try this. It might change your mind. He took a sip and spit it out. I said, what are you doing? That was like $5 you just spit out. <laughs> he said, I, I still don't like wine. <laughs> I was watching this movie recently. It was a documentary on Netflix called Psalm. It's about these guys passing, going to take their test for a master sommelier exam. Do you guys know what a master sommelier exam? I didn't know anything about this. It's, it's an exam. It is the, the chief exam of, of wine tasting and wine people who recommend wines. And they know everything there is to know about wines, which you'll, so you'll see in a minute. But as I watched this, I was, I was blown away by how much there is to know about wine. I didn't know that there was this much to know about wine. But the, the, the different regions and the different grapes and the, and the different uh, vineyards and wineries and, and the different laws and the different foods that go with the wine, watch this and you'll get, a, you'll get an appreciation for wine. Just a little sample of this, of this movie clip here. Isn't that interesting? So these guys, and it was amazing watching this because these guys would they'd sit around and they'd test different wines and one guy, I mean, you'd see him and they say, well, it's, it's, it's got this flavor and this and this. And they go on and on and on. And he's like, it's this grape. It's from this region. It's from this subregion. It's from this vineyard. And it's this vintage. I mean, this is how gifted or crazy or <laughs> lunatic they were. I mean, they were insane. And, and the reason I, I mention this is because when we talk about wine, there's more to it than just it tasted better than the previous wine. And that's sort of the glimpse we get. This guy says, whoa, this is the better wine. But what made it better? What did it taste like? Did it taste like oranges? And did it taste, have that citrusy taste? How was the acidity, acidity level? What year did he think it was from? You know, you think about this. From a master sommelier standpoint, what did Jesus' wine taste like? You know, in this miracle, a lot of people might suggest, or more kind of 
uh, liberal theologians might suggest that this is all a metaphor. That Jesus didn't actually turn water into wine, but this is a metaphor for something bigger. Well, I agree that it's a metaphor. Jesus, the text tells us that Jesus turned water into wine. There's no reason to believe differently. But I think it's telling us something bigger about who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing. I think we'll see that with every single sign in the book of John. So let's begin. What, did, what made Jesus the master of quality? What happened in a story that tells us and that we can grasp one about who Jesus is? Well, first we know that there is a wedding. And Jesus is there, and by this time he has some disciples, so he is a rabbi. But curiously enough, he has not performed, or at least John uh, tells us that he has not performed these public miracles. So Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And what was his response? Woman, why do you involve me? Now, I don't know about you parents, but if you ever said to your kid, the dishes are dirty, and they would say, woman, <laughs> why do you involve me? I see, I see some of you moms, like you're, you have this reflex, and your arms, like, you can't stop it. I understand. And you're like, and you're ready to swing at something. Just relax. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus in this story is not being disrespectful to his mom. In Spain, we used to call, we used to, you know, we would say mujer or mujeres a lot for woman. And it was a term of endearment. It was not disrespectful. But yet it seems quite unorthodox that Jesus would refer to his mom as woman. Well, why is that? I was watching Man of Steel recently. You guys seen this movie, Man of Steel? It's a Superman movie. Really interesting. I did not know this, and I grew up, I grew up probably because I grew up watching Superman, but it's an allegory for the Christ story. I mean, think about it. You have this guy born in a different world. He was the, he's the only son who um, his world is under attack. He comes to earth. He's given to two adopted parents. His dad's name begins with a J. His, mom, his mom's name begins with an M. He, uh, he's raised by them, he's, he, he's a world changer, and, and he's there to save the planet from the forces of evil that are coming to attack Earth. It's really interesting, isn't it? And, that, that was, and what I really loved about the movie, I'm not a sci-fi person, so there's a lot of sci-fi scenes that I was like, who cares? But the, but the um, sorry Trekkies and Star Wars people, I'm, just not a, I'm not a sci-fi person, but I love the storyline. They really brought it out. This is a scene, this is Clark Kent on the right, his dad, um, who's played by Kevin Costner. And, and it, what's really interesting is that they're, they're constantly advi- uh, advising him not to do things that would reveal who he really is. And so there's this one scene where he saves some kids on a bus, and there's a, there's a number of things, and they're constantly like, you can't do that stuff. And he's like, but my friends were dying. You know, and, 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 he's, and so there's this, there's this scene where they're on the interstate in Kansas and a tornado comes forward and it's barreling down on its highway and, and they all take refuge under the overpass and the father hurts his ankle and he's stuck there by the car. And you can see his mom cries out, Clark, you know, do something. And, and, and Clark looks around and sees that there's a crowd of people and knows that if he saves his dad, he'll reveal himself. And his dad reaches out his hand to say, don't come. It's better for me to die than for you to reveal yourself. I thought that was fascinating, especially in light of this story. And so Clark stays there, not choosing not to reveal himself, 
but he lets his father die. And when I think about that, I think about this story here. When Jesus says to his mom, woman, why do you involve me? It's not my time. Why does he say that? Well, if Bill Smith were here, he could, he could tell this better than, my, than me. But I, for women, for moms, they never want their little boys to grow up. And sometimes that can be a trouble for the little boy. They sort of live under that shadow and that umbrella if the mom isn't willing to let go and let the boy become a man. And so they want to hold on to that boyhood. Well, in this case, Jesus is sort of wearing a hat and he's changing the hat that I'm no longer just your son, Mary. I'm the Messiah. And those things that you tell me, you know, it's not a matter of just being your son and being obedient to you. It's about being the Messiah here. And that authority that you have over me as a parent, that's, this is a different ballgame. I have to put on a different hat. So he says, he says, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour to reveal who he is has not yet come. And interesting enough, even when he changes the water into wine, only the servants, at least at that time, knew that Jesus had performed this miracle. It was sort of downplayed on the down low. But there are a lot of masters in this story. There's Mary, Jesus' mom, has this authority. There's the bridegroom, it's his wedding. There's the master of the banquet. But everything has to change in order for Jesus to reveal that he is the master of quality. Jesus can no longer take the back seat. He has to be in charge. And so Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus tells the servants to fill up the stone jars with water. And then he turns the water into wine. You know, we see the master's quality best when we give him authority. We see the master's quality best when we give him authority. As a teacher, and those of you who are teachers have probably said this a million times, when I am talking, you are not talking, right? We say that over and over and over. Why? Because we want our kids to hear our instruction. I say over and over in my web design class, the most important thing, the most important thing, the most important thing is to follow instructions. Follow directions. If you don't follow directions, you will make a mistake and you will cause the class to lose time. The most important thing we can do is to give the Master Jesus authority. A lot of people want to hear Jesus speak into their lives. They want to hear, Jesus, tell me what you want, want to do with my life. Where should I go? Who should I marry? Where should I go to college? Where, what do you have for me? What career choice should I make? And you ask them, well, how's your prayer life? And they say, well, not really existent. Well, how do you expect Jesus to speak to you if you're not allowing him the time and the space and the place to think and to speak into your life? And so we see the master's quality best when we allow him to have authority in our lives. Let's turn our attention to these stone jars, these big pots that were used. You know, the the scripture here says that they were used for um, Jewish ceremonial cleansing. And what we're going to see throughout the book of John is that Jesus often appears, or a number of times appears, during a Jewish feast, or we'll see with the Samaritan, the woman at the, at the well in Samaria, it's a, there's a talk about 
Jewish theology and Samaritan theology. We'll see Jesus at the, at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. There's always these scenes here in John. And, and the next, if you read next, you'll read that um, it says Jesus cleanses the temple there in John 2, even though in the Synoptic Gospels it occurs later in Jesus' life. What John is telling us is something very important. He's telling us that the master repurposes the ordinary and the religious. The master repurposes the ordinary and the religious. So we have some pots here that were pretty much an ordinary part of Jewish life, but yet they had religious purposes to them. We'll see uh, a number of events where Jesus takes the religious festival of the day and repurposes it and refocuses it to him. How many of you, and I, I'll, I'll say I'm one who says this, but how many of you have said or have heard someone say, I went to church my whole life. I grew up in a Christian home my whole life, but, but what? But I never knew who Jesus was. I went to church my whole life. So do you go to church now? Yeah, I go to church now. Well, what's different? The whole purpose of church is different because it's all about Jesus. I had a career, and, and then I became a believer. And do you still have that career? Yeah, so what's different? My whole purpose of my career, my whole purpose of my life is different. Jesus changes. He repurposes the ordinary and the religious. So let's um, turn our attention back to these, these pots, because these were not your ordinary pots. These were big. The text tells us between 20 and 30, 30 gallons. These Technically, 18 to 27 gallons per pot, that's a lot of water. And times that by six, and any math whizzes here? 108 to 162 gallons of wine. 108 to 162 gallons of wine. I don't know if you, I, I can't think in gallons of wine, but I can think in bottles. 540 to 802 bottles of wine Jesus brought a lot of booze to the party, didn't he? I mean, he brought a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's extravagant wine. That's, that's amazing. 540 to 802 bottles. Where were they going to drink all that? I mean, this is, this is a lot of wine. But what gets me is not just the extravagance, that Jesus provides an extravagance here and meets these needs. What, what gets me is that Jesus provides a quality to the wine. Everything the master does is quality and is independent of quantity. Everything the master does is quality and is independent of quantity. I'm sure if you visited uh, sort of a, a, I don't know if they call it a small vineyard or a micro vineyard or something. I don't know if that's the word for them. But if if, if you visited one, they might say something like, well, we choose to keep our vineyard and our production small so that we can focus on the quality. But it doesn't matter with Jesus, whether it's a small thing or whether it's feeding 5,000, whether it's changing one life, whether it's speaking into the life of Nicodemus, for example, or feeding 5,000 people and more, or providing 500 to 800 bottles of wine. Everything Jesus does is quality. It doesn't matter about the quantity. Whether the ministry is small or whether it's large, whether it's thriving, 
What Jesus does is quality. So why wine? I mean, it seems kind of weird that Jesus would launch himself into ministry by turning water into wine. There's so many other things that could happen. He could have raised someone from the dead. He could have healed someone. But John tells us that he revealed his glory first by turning water into wine. Well, why is that? Well, in Jewish customs, wine symbolized joy, as we learned in the children's message. Wine symbolizes joy. So it was a bad thing to run out of wine at your wedding day because that's sort of a bad omen of things to come. Wine symbolized joy. And what Jesus does is he turns joy and gives more joy to the, the party. Because really, if you think about it, joy is the result of the master's work. Joy is the result of the master's work. Think about the people that were involved in the story. There were uh, those in the party that enjoyed the new wine. There's the bridegroom who had a sudden surprise that here his wedding was becoming a total failure and that they ran out of wine and now he's got better wine. Or the master of the banquet who tasted the wine and enjoyed it and said, this is the better wine. And then there are the servants who knew where the wine came from and had a part in the miracle. Imagine the stories that they'll tell from their, for their whole lives. I was at this wedding And this guy told me to fill this thing up with water, and it turned into delicious wine. Joy is the result of the master's work. And the closer we're in the master's work, the more joy it gives. Not easiness, not uh, everything is all just fine and peachy. But as anyone tells you who's ever done some of the different things, that even the hard things... There's so much joy in being involved in the master's work. Later on in, in, in the book of John, Jesus says, in John 15, he says, I am the vine. He sort of returns to this uh, vineyard motif. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from, but apart from me, you can do nothing. C.S. Lewis talked about this miracle of water changing into wine, and he talked about it in his book, God in the Docks. And he said that if you think about it, water always takes, turns into wine, right? Water rains from the sky, nourishes the ground, vines produce, more water falls, the vines suck up the water, it feeds the grapes, the grapes are processed, water is involved in the process. In a, in a sense, water always becomes wine. So there's something natural, but yet there's something supernatural here. Jesus chose to accelerate the process and skip a few steps in in the process as well. And so we shouldn't be consumed by necessarily whether it was natural or supernatural. There's something important in Jesus' words. The the focus here in Jesus' statement is is not the process, but rather, if you remain in me and I in you. That's the focus of this passage. Here's Jesus' one of seven I am statements. I am the vine. I am the vine. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Sometimes, you know, and in my life, I have oftentimes discredited God because there was something natural that occurred. So, for example, you pray for healing for someone while the doctors intervened and 
and help them out and so forth, and they became well. And you say, well, it wasn't really a miracle. The doctors were involved, and there was some natural healing and so forth. Well, I've definitely changed the way that I think about that, because if you think about it, God created the natural process, right? He created the body to heal itself. He created, he created grapes to grow on vines. He created the natural process. Any time that somebody is healed of something, it's a natural, it's God's hand working in that natural process. And sometimes there is a supernatural involvement in which God's hand accelerates the healing or accelerates the, the water turning into wine and so forth. So we shouldn't get caught up on whether it's a natural thing or a supernatural thing. What we should get caught up in is that it's Jesus doing the work. How many times have, have you heard someone criticize uh, someone who's really well-learned, maybe a Bible scholar, for all their degrees? And you say, well, that's just a bunch of head knowledge. That's just natural. I mean, what they know isn't supernatural. They went to school and they paid lots of money and they have lots of degrees and so forth. Or how many times have you maybe heard someone say the opposite? Well, that guy, he's unqualified because he doesn't have that degree or he doesn't have that experience or he doesn't do that or this or the other. One may be a little more natural. One may be a little more supernatural. But we should never discredit when God's hand is in the work because it's God who sometimes uses things naturally and sometimes God uses things supernaturally. But the most important thing is that we remain in Jesus. Because production of masterful quality may include the natural or it may include the supernatural. But it always, always, always includes the master himself. As we close this morning, I want to invite you again to close your eyes and bow your heads. You know, this afternoon you're going to go off and maybe go home and watch football or engage with uh, different relationships that you have tomorrow. You'll probably go back to work. And we spent some time this morning learning from the Master and seeing who he is, inviting our life into his. And let's spend some time inviting the Master's life into ours and asking him to work through us so that we don't try to do this alone. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.